So today we are continuing our series on, uh, well, not really a series, but our time in Mark. It's just a, a brief time in Mark. And uh, this is this was kind of unintentional. We weren't trying to steal the RCF guys' thunder uh, for the, their time in Mark. But in, in Epiphany, it's just, it, it was scheduled this year that we would be reading in Mark. And so we're continuing our time in Epiphany. This is the fifth week of Epiphany. And We've begin. Uh, we've begun to see Christ as being unveiled to Israel, and we had noted how not only is He unveiled to Israel as the Son of God, who is going to come to take away sins, but also He's unveiled to all the world. And we also see a very small glimpse, but at the, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, a true glimpse of the new covenant which Christ is bringing with him. It's not just that Christ is coming to be a miracle worker at a particular time, at a particular place for just the people of Israel. He is coming and he's bringing with him a kingdom and also instituting the new covenant. And so in today's readings, we're going to look at how the reading shows us both wine and bread, a foreshadowing of the Eucharistic meal, that is the meal that we celebrate in thanksgiving to God. So we're going to look today at these elements of the passage, Jesus as the bridegroom. What does he mean when he says, when the bridegroom's here, the, the, disciple, uh, the, the friends of the bridegroom can't fast? What is he talking about there? We're going to look at how Jesus uh, demonstrates that his kingdom that he brings, his new covenant that he ushers in, is like a new garment, and it's like a new wine. We're going to talk about what that means and how it affects our life and how we understand the gospel to have implication for how we approach God and how we encounter God's love. We're going to look at Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. If you remember, the Pharisees are the, uh, at that time in history, they are the religious system of the day, which had, uh, although started in good beginnings, generations before, had perverted their way and they had taken the law out of context and attempted to perform the law in order to be righteous before God, rather than following the example of the faithful patriarchs throughout all of the scriptures who believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. And so we understand that the New Testament clearly teaches the doctrine that the law cannot be completed in order to be righteous, but rather that in faith, we can be righteous before God. And Jesus comes to demonstrate that not only is he Lord over the Sabbath, but he is Lord over all of it. He is not... uh, He is not abolishing the law, but rather putting it into force and also setting up a time-space continuity, a a place in which, an environment in which people can come into the kingdom and encounter this love of God, which he compares to, to a garment or to a new wine. And so Jesus demonstrates in this encounter how he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in so doing, he represents, or he brings out a a mention of the grain. So we have the wine and the grain, the Eucharistic meal, which we'll be ending with. This is a way to understand this passage. There there are poetic references, there are symbolic references. It it would be like if you saw all the nice detail in the verses and then kind of zoomed out and you took a note at the background. Jesus is talking about the new covenant which he brings, and that new covenant is tied to necessarily the Eucharistic meal, the meal that we take. Some of you may know it as communion. The Eucharist is, I like that phrase because it means to give thanks, Eucharisto. So the Eucharist is the meal that is the sign and symbol of the new covenant being enacted. And that's what we partake in every week. 
So Jesus is continuing to go around. If you remember from last week, he's, he's going around and he's healing people. And now he moves to uh, a place where he's going to get accused of something. We've seen already that he's had one little tuffle with uh, the Pharisees and they, they get all mad whenever anything happens, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, they're they're kind of curmudgeons. They just, not like church curmudgeon, but regular curmudgeons. They, they just get mad with it when anything happens. And so also, they, they kind of affect the people. If you, you see here in this verse, verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him. So it's people who are coming around. It's not the Pharisees and it's not the disciples of John. They probably would have joined in with the question, but it just says people. So it's, it's probably the case that the common people, the, those who are just villagers or citizens of Israel, those people come and ask a question. Obviously, the Pharisees have influence. They, their, their war against Christ in their hearts is starting to leak out, and it's causing the people to have accusations against the Lord. The people came out and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is a common practice in religious faith, uh, as it's experienced in Israel at the time, that that those who would learn from the scriptures must eat the scriptures and not just natural food. And so when Jesus says uh, that man does not live by bread alone, he is within the tradition of authentic faith. And so these Pharisees, these Essenes, the, the sect that John the Baptist was a part of, they had set up fasting that had kind of diverged a bit from the purpose. The purpose of fasting is to cultivate and to promote your heart before the Lord. And Jesus here demonstrates that it's not appropriate to fast when the Lord's in your midst. It is appropriate to fast, to abstain from earthly pleasures, natural pleasures, in order to create space in your life, create space in your heart, in your emotions, to encounter God. And so Jesus demonstrates here that when the bridegroom's present, you have no need of fasting. This is why traditionally, uh, fasts like Lent, which we are about to enter into, you don't fast on Sundays because it's the Lord's day and the Lord's present in the midst of his people. And so if you're considering that this year, you're thinking about fasting, maybe take this into consideration. When the Lord is truly present, you do not need to fast. And therefore, if you abstain from fasting during Lent on the Lord's day, you are prophetically saying that the Lord is present among his people. Jesus goes and in this, in this time here, he, he demonstrates that he is the bridegroom. What does this mean? Um, if you type this wrong, which I did one time last night when I was making my notes, I accidentally typed it Bridge Grom, and that sounds like a character in a Tolkien novel that we were, Bridge Grom, he hangs out under a bridge, he's a troll. No, that, just so you remember what this word means, because it's not a common word, and the reason I typed it wrong is because you very rarely type this word, is that he is the groom at a wedding. The bridegroom is the groom that we called, you know, we called that person today the groom. And so there's a bride and a bridegroom, and that's husband and wife. So Jesus is identifying himself as the groom, and that has explicit uh, reference in the scriptures. That's not, Jesus doesn't bring out a new idea, although he identifies himself as the bridegroom. He is not bringing out a brand new idea to the, to the Israelites. Uh, over and over again in the Old Testament, the pro the, especially the minor prophets, they condemn Israel for running away from who? Her husband, her maker. 
the Lord is your husband, Israel. That is commonly said in the Old Covenant. And so Christ identifies himself as the bridegroom. This is unique because Yahweh in the Old Covenant is said to have married uh, Israel. In the Exodus, he brings her out of Egypt. He draws her out just like God created a bride from Adam's rib by taking him through a deep sleep and then ripping apart right? Likewise, God rips Israel out of the side of Egypt. He rips her apart. There's a, a terror. There's an exodus. There's a rendering uh, of, of, of the account. Uh, and so God is forming a bride for himself in the people uh, of Israel. And here Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. Rightly understood, we see Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. By identifying himself as the bridegroom, who these people are fellowshipping with, he is saying that I am the one who covenantly joined myself to Israel. And he is identifying himself as Yahweh. And so as a man is jealous for the purity of his betrothed, that is the person who he is pledged to marry, a man is jealous for the purity of his betrothed, uh, a righteous man is, so also Christ is, is jealous for the righteousness of the church. And so Jesus here is saying, there's no need to fast when you're in the presence of the Lord. And so he demonstrates that he himself is the bridegroom making a claim to be Yahweh. His explanation of their not fasting does include a mention of his coming ascension. He's not specifically referring to his death, but rather his ascension when the bridegroom will be taken away. The Lord was not taken away from man at the crucifixion and burial, but rather when he left the earth, when he ascended into heaven, when he was taken up and went up. That is when he was taken away. And so Jesus prophesies concerning the day. He says, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. What does that mean to us? That means it's not a weird thing for you to fast as a disciple. It's not a uh, radical element of Christianity. It is a normative uh, element of Christianity. It is right for you. It is not uh, a zealous thing for you to fast before the Lord. This is a way in which we create space in our life to encounter the bridegroom. It's the way that we uh, mourn his uh, uh, departure, mourn his, his uh, lack of presence. In a real way, the Lord is present every week when we take this, this uh, time to worship him and to encounter him at the table. But in a very real sense, nothing is right in the world until Jesus Christ returns, when everything is unified in heaven and earth through the man Jesus Christ, when God puts all enemies of Christ under his feet, which we're involved in doing. And so testifying uh, through your fasting, fasting that you do is a prophetic witness, both to you and the world around you, that it is not right unless Christ is here. And we still have a blessed hope of his bodily return to this earth. That is what authentic apostolic Christianity teaches. It is not as you hear in this day, everything about dying and going to heaven. That is not the end game for Christianity. You are not going to be an ethereal spirit running around clouds like Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. If you've never seen that commercial, please YouTube it. The, the popular vision of heaven is golden harps, pearly gates, clouds which you can run through. And if you wanted to high five somebody, there'd, be, there'd always be a miss. The, the hope of Christianity is that the bridegroom would return and bring his bride to a faithful wedding supper. That is what we see in Revelation uh, 19, which we're going to reference in a bit. 
that the bride has made herself ready and she has adorned herself with pure white robes of righteousness, which is in Revelation, it said are the deeds of the saints, which we're going to look at here in a second at the mention of garments. It's not, that's not a weird thing. Jesus is talking in a, uh, a system here. He's, he's using a literary system to, to communicate something. But, but our vision of the end of, of time, our vision of the end of our lives, your personal eschatology, what you believe about where you're going, what trajectory you're on. If you are a Christian, you, not, you do not just believe that you will be with the Lord when you die. That is true. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be at home or present with the Lord. It is true that you will be with the Lord in some way that we don't fully understand. The scriptures don't give us a precise insight into that uh, aspect of the afterlife. But the primary hope that Christians have, which we speak every week in the recitation of the Nicene Creed, is we believe in the resurrection from the dead. That Jesus Christ, at his coming, all who have died, first those in Christ and then those who are not in Christ, will rise from the dead. There will be a great judgment, and then afterwards, the the end of the ages has come, and we will spend eternity with our maker, who is our husband, the bridegroom God. We like to be around this guy. That is what it means for us to understand Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. I very rarely meet people who are engaged and not absolutely attracted to each other and spending a lot of time. Look at these two. They spend all, all the time in the world together. They're a wonderful example of what it means to be engaged. And, you know, anybody who's been married, anybody who's courted, anybody, you like to be around the person you're dating or engaged to, or else you get rid of them. Usually, or you should, maybe. Maybe you need some counsel before you do it. But, but not fasting, not fasting, therefore, as a, as a cultural Christian today, not fasting is denying the reality that you do like to be with the Lord. So I really commend you to engage in fasting this season that's coming up in Lent. I really encourage you to take some time to, to think about it. It's historic. The church has done it. They've done it for a reason for uh, the centuries, and it's, wor- it's worth considering and participating in. So Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom, but he also teaches that not only is he the bridegroom, but what he's bringing with him as he is, as he is present is a new garment and a new wine. The garments that he gives, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. What is, what is the old garment that he is speaking of? He is speaking of a particular thing. I'll let you think about that question as we continue to, to read verse 21. The, if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from old. Why does this happen? Well, if you've ever had a pair of jeans that you like and they fit really nice, what's the best way to ruin them? Throw them through the washer, then throw them through the dryer on high heat, they'll shrink. Because cloth, after it gets relaxed in the water and then it dries, it gets shrink, it shrinks, it gets tighter. Uh, Ask me how I know. Many a pair of jeans I've had to like stretch and because I like them to be, you know, relaxed. They even sell them now, relaxed fit. Don't throw those through the dryer. What'll happen? It'll shrink. Jesus is describing that if you take an unshrunk piece of cloth and you put it on an old garment and you sew it all together, then when you wash it, it's going to do what? It's going to pull away from the seams and it's going to rip. It's going to rip and it's going to make the hole worse. If you try to patch that, it's going to get worse. Always wash your patch before you sew it on your... This isn't a sewing class. He's talking about something. What is he talking about? We'll, we'll examine in a second. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine bursts the skins. What happens when wine is put into a bottle? 
If it's not already been fermented and gassed, if the fermentation process is still taking place in the wine, pressure will build up in the container and it will explode. If you ever want to try this out, get a little bit of rubbing alcohol, put a tiny bit of rubbing alcohol in an empty water bottle, and then put it in the sunlight. And uh, unscrew the cap a little bit and stand back in your house. Watch it from outside. It'll explode because the pressure of the alcohol evaporating and filling the container, it just it's wonderful. If you have it not understood this, this is what God is talking about in the person of Christ when he's saying, if you put new wine in old bottles, wine that is not fully fermented, wines that, wine that is not uh, settled, it will destroy the old bottles or the old wineskins. Uh, if you've never seen a wineskin, they don't really commonly exist anymore, but they used to make them out of goat intestines. It's great. Uh, goats would, goat intestines are expansive. They, they would open up and you would basically cover them with some sort of leather and it would allow the wine to be stored and still continue to ferment um, because there's very, it, it's very hard to stop fermentation. There's ways of doing it, but if you put it in an old wineskin and the old wineskin's all already aged and leathery and it's too brittle, it'll explode. The wine is ruined and the old wineskin can't even contain old wine anymore. Jesus is describing something. He's using this prophetic language, this parabolic language, uh, to highlight the reality of the new covenant. The new covenant which he institutes is a new garment that you need, and it's new wine that you need. The new covenant includes the new birth of a person's soul, as well as the creation of a new community. Jesus, in talking about this new garment, is referring specifically to, I asked you what you thought it was. Hopefully you saw this. The new garments which Christ gives you are the righteous deeds of the saints, we reference from Revelation 19, and they cannot be tied to your filthy rags of righteousness, of self-righteousness. Your filthy rags that you have, which the Bible says is your sin before God, those cannot be joined to the new work that Christ is doing. You need a new garment. You need to be clothed with, with a garment that you did not make. And the new garment which Christ brings for you is the righteousness which he bestows upon you. Likewise, this new wine is speaking of the violent, explosive, expansive love of God, which is supposed to, according to Romans, fill your heart which it's poured out by the Holy Spirit. He says that these old vessels, the Pharisees, he's speaking of the Pharisaical system, it cannot contain the new revelation of the new covenant. What Christ brings when he comes and institutes the new covenant will be explosive. It'll be expansive and it'll be good. It'll be wine worth saving. Jesus says these things and it's very, sometimes it's very unclear to understand why, uh, you know, after he talks about fasting, why does he then talk about garments and wine bottle, you know, wine skins? It doesn't make any sense unless you understand he's speaking uh, in a parable. He's speaking in a phrase and a saying. And so Jesus is describing the nature of the new covenant. It's a completely new garment. It's not a garment which you patch up yourself. It's a completely new wineskin which you didn't make. It's wine that you didn't press. This love of God which is coming which is going to be poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit, that's wine which is bringing a blessing. It's bringing freshness. It's bringing uh, a newness to it. The old wineskin has to be done away with. And so Jesus is, is describing these things. So we then pick up the story. There's another happening right in this passage. That's the first part. Um, <clears throat> oh, sorry. Um, 
these these Pharisees, which would just to highlight why the old wineskin has to be done away with, Jesus demonstrates over and over again in the gospel that the, the Pharisees cannot permit the revelation of God's mercy and grace because of their ideology, their their religion that they had subverted from true faith. Their religion had basically, as Jesus Christ says, it had shut men out of the kingdom. And Jesus comes, what did we see two weeks ago when we were in Mark 1? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so those who want to keep people out of the kingdom are not compatible with those who are saying, the kingdom is at hand, I'm bringing it with me as I come. And so the old wineskins have to be done away with. In our context, applying this to today, this matters to you. It's not just the Pharisees. What this means to you is that you cannot just go about your own way and and hope to have Christ on the side. You need a new garment. You need a new wineskin. This speaks that we cannot approach Christ unless he makes us anew completely. The, The New Testament says that of new believers, those who are born again, the old has passed away and the new has come. This is what it means to understand the gospel. So we see this next uh, account. If you are, are following along, we're, verse 23, this next account happens and the Pharisees get troubled by this little bit of living. We alluded to this earlier. The, they get troubled by any, any little bit of squabble or life. Life is messy if you don't know that. Our church is about to get a, uh, uh, a crash course in messy. We're about to have four new children uh, in the church, little babies. And guess what? If you want to have a baby, you're going to have diapers. I learned this. I, this is a, it's a famous saying from uh, Randy Green over at FCF. He tells their people, if you want to have a baby, you're going to have some diapers. Life is messy. And you can tell if you're operating in a pharisaical spirit, if the things that other people do in their life just to live, like eat or or sleep or make noise or cough, if those things get you on edge all the time, you're probably a Pharisee. Because any little bit of life that is messy, really, if it bumps your boat and, and bad stuff spills out, you, you, may, you may be a Pharisee. I could see a whole, I could see a whole new comedian routine. You might, be a, you might be a Pharisee. So anyway, Christ has every right, by the way, to do what he does. He needs to eat in order to continue on his journey. And the law made a a special provision for this. If you think that Jesus is bending the rules here because he's going through someone else's field and taking grain out of someone else's field, I just want you to understand that that is not what the the law, which is the formulation of our understanding of righteousness, the law does not condemn eating out of another person's uh, field. What it does say in Deuteronomy is you don't put any grapes in the bag. You take some grapes off the vine, you eat them what you need in the moment. You take some grain off the ground, again, wine and grain. Uh, you take some grain out of the field for what you need in the moment. You do not take it in your bag. You do not wield a scythe or a sickle against the grain because that is your neighbor's uh, prosperity. That's your neighbor's uh, income. So, so the law recognizes that in the moment of need, if you're on a journey, uh, they didn't have 7-Eleven and you needed some food, you could get some food from an orchard, from a, from a field. Jesus is not pilfering, okay? Just so we get that clear, now that we've covered the categories, okay, let's talk about doing it on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, one Sabbath day, he was going through the grain fields at verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? It's not lawful so they're, they're not saying that it's lawful, it, it wasn't lawful for him to do it at all. 
But just in case you were thinking, hey, that doesn't sound right, he's taking somebody else's stuff, we cover that idea. Their, their main concern is that he is, is doing this thing on the Sabbath. But understand the principle, right? We talked about how in Deuteronomy it says you cannot put any in your bag. What is putting food or, or something from an orchard or a vineyard into a bag? When does that happen? Harvest. Okay, what, ha- what is harvest? Harvest is work. You do not wield a scythe against your neighbor's field. Why? What is that? Harvest, work, same thing. It is not work on the Sabbath. The law understood that when the threat of life is, is present, the law goes away. Anything that it would require someone to do an emergency uh, uh, situation, uh, a doctor performing a, a particular you know, inspection of a patient or a surgery or procedure, the law and the Sabbath run away. That's a phrase that they have on the Sabbath the, uh, in the presence of, of where life is threatened. And so Jesus here is going on a journey and he's just doing what is needed to, to live. He's not taking somebody else's crop. He's not harvesting. He's just eating. He is stopping at the next rest stop and getting some food. And the Pharisees are troubled by this. So it's clear that the law understands that what Jesus was doing is not considered work. And yet they do not understand that. And they have created, this is why the New Testament says that the Pharisees over and over again, it doesn't say this explicitly in any one place, but the whole corpus of the New Testament says that the Pharisees have created uh, laws that are not God's laws. And over and over again, Christ warns them and he condemns them saying that they uh, excuse the law of God for man's tradition. And so Jesus here is demonstrating that it is lawful. He doesn't argue that point with them because he wants to show them the depth of their need for him to open their eyes even more. But just before we see Jesus's demonstration, his argument, his promotion of, you know, he speaks for his uh, case at this point, not during his trial. But at this point, he demonstrates the righteousness of his actions and he makes them understand that they are judgmental in the wrong way. They are not understanding the law of God, and they have substituted their own interpretation. They are attempting to be righteous by their own standard, not God's standard, which is idolatry. Promoting your word above God's word is idolatry, and he calls them out on that. Christ disarms them by retelling this story of how David ate the bread of the presence. And if you don't know a little bit about the bread of the presence, don't worry, we'll talk about it in just a minute. But just so you understand, Jesus is disarming them. He is not going off on a tangent. He's not dismissing their claims. He is sticking up for himself. He is trying to demonstrate how they need him to open their eyes. He said to them, have you never read what David did? That right there should, if you, if you understand the Pharisaic tradition, that should hit you like a ton of bricks. They were students of the scriptures. What is the phrase? The Pharisees and the scribes. They wrote the scriptures. They made copies of the scriptures. Jesus Christ is coming and slapping them in the face, attempting to wake them up to the depth of their sin and their idolatry before God. He says to them, have you never read when David did this? They had to read it. It was on their exams. If, if there was like an MCAT for Pharisees, it was reading the Bible. They had to read their copy of the scriptures. When he says, have you never read what David did? He is intentionally offending them. That is offensive to a Pharisee. And he, what he does is he demonstrates that they are reading in the wrong way. 
This is why I'm very against just, you know, a lot of ministries, they send Bibles through the mail to everybody. You can't read the Bible if your eyes are blind. You can't. And so he says, have you never read what David did? What he's, un- what he's demonstrating is that they do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God, which is a phrase he says elsewhere. He, he, he demonstrates how they're reading in the, in the wrong way. Continuing in uh, verse 25, when he was in need and was hungry. Jesus is, is comparing his situation to David's situation. Surely, none of the Pharisees would have, would have accused David of committing sin because the textual record doesn't say that. But what he does demonstrate is that they are not being consistent with their understanding of the, the law, of keeping of the law with what the scripture teaches. And the point is that the scripture teaches mercy above, above sacrifice. Verse 26, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence. We're going to talk a little bit about what the bread of the presence uh, means in just a second. But it just look really closely at this, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Who is David? David is a king. David is not a priest. It is not lawful for David to eat this bread. This bread of the presence, which we're going to talk about now, is is a reminder of God's presence in Israel. If you go back to Deuteronomy and you read uh, also in the Exodus, where where it describes the the tabernacle and and how the the bread was supposed to be placed right in the holy place, uh, it it talks about God's presence being identified with this bread, which is why it's called the bread of the presence. It's not bread that uh, communicates your presence so much as it communicates God's presence. But if you think about the nature of bread and, and how it's made, it has a lot of implications for God's righteousness and faithfulness. This bread of the presence is a sign of his blessing on their harvest. You can't have bread without grain. Over and over again, the minor prophets warn Israel that if she continues in her way, that the wine will be cut off, the grain will be cut off. And so this bread of the presence shows, and it, it, it is a visible sign of God's faithfulness in blessing their harvest, and also their faithful stewardship of the land that he gives them. And so this bread is covenantal bread. It's a covenantal sign. It can't be there without the covenant existing. This bread communicates Yahweh's unique presence in Israel. There is no bread of the presence outside of the tabernacle or at, later in the temple. There is no bread that is uh, symboled to anyone in the world except this. A foreshadowing of this bread was the manna which was in the wilderness. And this itself is just a foreshadowing of the meal we take. And so why is it not lawful for David to eat this? It's because where the bread is. This isn't like a I'm not into gluten thing, which is maybe why you might not try to take communion today, which is insane. But I've, I've heard these things. I actually have seen advertisements for gluten-free communion wafers. I just, I can't. Anyway, the point is that David is not a priest. So David is counted righteous. Jesus is promoting this story, right? This isn't like a little distraction. Jesus isn't bringing up a spiritual reference, a little sideshow. This is what you and I do sometimes when we try to justify our actions. Jesus isn't justifying in the wrong way. He's promoting this as an example of why it's right for him to do what he did. And so, he, so if we understand that David is counted as righteous here, we can infer properly, biblically, that David saw in faith that it was right for him to go to the source of life when he needed it. David was at the threat of life, he and his companions. And so what did he do? He went to the bread which satisfies. 
he went to the bread which saves his life. And so David is a prophet, not only here, but also we see in Acts 2. If, you, if you're curious as how to make that inference, uh, there's these little things on the slides. CF, that means confer or consult or compare. Take a look at those verses if you think that's a stretch. David is going to where the life is found because he's in the threat of losing his life. And so he runs into the holy place. It's not lawful for a king to go into the holy place. It's only lawful for a priest. That is what the debate is about. It's not a white versus wheat. It's not a gluten. It's not a style of bread thing. It's not even, even though you hear about this time and again, it's not even a leavened versus unleavened issue. It's about who David was and where the bread was. The bread was in the holy place, and it was not lawful for anyone but a priest to go into the holy place. This is all a foreshadowing of Christ and what he has done for the community. We have seen that he is bringing a new wine. And we also likewise see that Jesus, in promoting himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, is demonstrating that he is righteous to give this meal. Many people continue their Christian life and think to themselves that the communion table which they, they partake at, or the Eucharist, the meal that they partake at, is nothing more than a symbol. I would like to suggest to you that the scriptures teach that it is not just a symbol like uh, a logo is a symbol. If you think of a McDonald's arch or the Nike swoosh, those are symbols of the companies they represent. The communion table which we eat at is not just an empty symbol with nothing behind the curtain. There is substance in that meal that we take. There is an actual exchange. We're going to end a little earlier than planned, so if someone wants to get the kids, that would be great. This meal that Christ brings, he demonstrates in a, in a parable, in a literary structure here. We see wine and grain promoted. We see first new wine that he's bringing, which speaks of the love of God, and specifically the love of God as poured out on the cross. In the song we sang this morning, What Would I Have Done? We talked about how the love of God was poured out on the cross as the blood of God was poured out on the cross. That when Jesus shed his blood, which he symbolized in wine at the meal beforehand, uh, that is the love of God being made manifest to you. It is not an abstraction. It is the blood of Christ. And so likewise, he, we see here him describing himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And the background to that is the new grain, the new, the new bread. Christ speaks of himself, of course, and he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And that is what we take, take place in, in communion. Because Christ has established his church, a community of the friends of the bridegroom, that is those people, the, the apostles and their uh, spiritual children, uh, we have heard this gospel and we have heard his free offer of reconciliation. It is not that we uh, have rediscovered this on our own. The church in, in God's preservation has established a continuity of the gospel. He, by his spirit, has reformed her and renewed her time and again. And yet it is the friends of the bridegroom who continue to be the ones who fellowship with him. That is what you are invited into, especially in this season, which com is coming up in Lent. And because Christ has demonstrated himself as Lord of the Sabbath, he has the right to offer a new meal a meal which passes away the meal of Passover and really inaugurates the true new covenant meal. Because he has poured the new wine in, of the covenant into his disciples, he continues to offer it to us. You cannot get your own wine. You cannot approach God. It must be poured out by the Holy Spirit. That is what God is, is doing in the new covenant when he's saying, I'm going to take their hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. 
That's what it means to have a new wineskin for to contain the love of God. In demonstrating that he's the son of man who is also the Lord of the Sabbath, he also invites us to enter into this meal by faith, just like David. David is promoted here. His example is promoted. When David is in trouble, he runs to the bread of the presence because he knows that's where life is found. Likewise, we, uh, we mentioned this in the Sunday school hour, we are encouraged uh, at the end of that message, Hebrews 4 was referenced, we are encouraged to go before the throne of God to find grace in the time of need. When you need help, it is right to run into the holy place and take the bread. So that's what we do in communion. That's what we encounter when we meet Jesus Christ at this table, which we are invited to. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful grace, which is shown as you're demonstrating yourself to the people of Israel and you confront and rebuke the Pharisees for their unrighteous interpretation of your law. Christ, we thank you for your graciousness and your mercy, which is demonstrated that you love mercy rather than sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for the kind heart that you've demonstrated in Christ. Lord, we ask that as we come to this table, that you would fill us with faith, that we would be able to partake in faith, knowing that we truly feast with you. Lord, we do ask that you would give us the wonderful hope of of, uh, partaking in that new marriage supper, which is coming at the end of the age. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.